Chapter 8 James's Triumph The 1914 Triumph Type A motorcycle rattled and hummed along the pitted road. The dispatch rider on its back wore spotless olive fatigues of the American Army, tall leather gauntleted gloves, an aviator's cap, and goggles. Young James Cox felt rather like a modern-day knight in shining armor on the machine. He was in love with this entire experience, a youthful warrior on his trusty steed delivering vital missives, a latter-day Paul Revere. Fancy new machines of all sorts had been a part of James's 18 years on the family plantation in Mississippi. His daddy, Richard, was entirely addicted to them. He had owned the first automobile in Cox County, which was the source of great jealousy and covetousness among the neighbors. But seeing as Cox County was named after James's family, it seemed fitting that they should have primacy in all things. When his daddy saw a 1906 Indian motorcycle V-twin racer at the state fair, he made a cash offer on the spot and rode the beautiful red machine straight home that day, while James and his older brother, strapping, charming, handsome Harlan, followed along in the Ford in awe. The motorcycle had been an even greater source of humiliation for the other well-to-do families of Cox County than the automobile, but they suffered through it or prayed it away on Sunday, much to the private delight of Richard, who had penciled in an aeroplane as his next purchase, much to the chagrin of James and Harlan's mama, Mary Lynn. James felt like his father's boy on the Triumph, he had been handpicked for this job, and that made his chest swell with pride. Daddy would be enormously pleased. Just as he thought the day could not possibly improve, he rounded a blind turn and had to swerve aside to avoid plowing into the back of Corporal Isaiah Taylor and his parade. James cursed softly and regained control of the machine, slowing to a gentle putt as he passed, taking in the spectacle. Two blacks and a French sergeant escorting a pair of Germans, Germans, who carried a very bloody third one on a makeshift stretcher. James smiled and motored on. Would wonders never cease? He crested a rise and then began a gentle descent through farmland toward his final destination. In its first incarnation, the Abbey cloistered nuns inside its stone walls and gantries. The Abbe Misericorde Divine fell on hard times during Napoleon's rule and became a boarding school for Catholic boys. In the first days of the Great War, it found itself shelled and overwhelmed by the Germans as they pushed toward Paris. Only the miracle of the Marne in 1914, when the French poilus and the bold British Tommies stopped the Germans in their tracks, then shoved them backward, kept the Abbey from becoming home to German doctors and their patients. Instead, the British occupied it, turning it into a bloody triage first, where they said farewell to their finest, bravest, and unluckiest, then into a permanent field hospital, as the trenches to the east strengthened and calcified into a static combat zone. Yet now it was again to be abandoned, the hospital at General Headquarters was not far and had a much superior set of surgery theatres closer to the fighting at Beaumont-Amel. The remaining patients had been lorried away, 
and all that remained of the regiment who called the Abbey home were a platoon of British riflemen and the last of the medical staff. In the entry courtyard of the Abbey, a barbed wire enclosure had been erected. In its embrace, a dozen dejected, disheveled German prisoners smoked, slept, and chatted quietly amongst themselves, uncertain of what was to come. The man tasked with guarding them, Private First Class Harry Moss, had been killing boredom by burning the nits in the sleeves of his uniform, by running a lit lucifer match up and down the seams where the little bitches laid their eggs. Standing sentry over these miserable Bosch cunts was worse than a lot of things, but it beat the crap out of being at the front, burying the dead, or sitting inside the chapel listening to the padre deliver up his Good Friday pitch. So Harry was counting his blessings as he rid himself of as many lice as his matches could immolate, while fantasizing about the day he just poured petrol on his whole uniform, kit and caboodle, and tossed a match on the lot of it. He looked up as he heard the approaching motorbike. James Cox motored through the gates of the aid station on the single-cylinder machine and pulled to a stop on the cobbles. Harry watched the boy dismount with casual interest. Like James, he had always been an admirer of machines and machinery. It began with trains as a boy. The cranking steel wheels and screaming steam whistle. The black smoke from the coke burning in the engine. The chugging rhythm as the massive beast hauled itself down the tracks. It followed with falling in love with the little automobiles that began to make their appearance on the streets of London. He could not help but feel a sharp twinge of jealousy, not just aimed at desire for the motorbike, but at the cush job attached to it. This messenger boy was far more apt to die because of a sudden and serious pothole than with a serrated and wet-stoned bayonet in his guts or gullet. The rider shut his engine down and pulled the machine onto its stand. The dusty helmet and goggles came off, revealing Private James Cox and all of his eighteen and a half years. He grinned at Harry and offered a wave, his handsome face full of the brash confidence and naivete of the youthful United States of America. A right cunt, Harry decided, straight off. He was rarely wrong about this sort of thing. He spat. Hi there. James's grin was of the pure, shit-eating type. Even more reason to hate this twat, thought Harry. He spat again and flicked away his spent matchstick. You carrying orders, then? Yeah, I got some papers for a Major Wilkins. Harry paused a second. The writer's accent was one he had never heard. Long and deep and lazy. Born and born on the waters of the Mississippi Delta. Right place. You're Canadian? American? Harry took that in for a moment. He spat again. Well, God blind me. A bloody yank. Better late than fucking never. James was not sure what to make of this reception. The foul language of the army was a new experience for him but he smothered his discomfort with a smile. He had been trying hard to be agreeable with everyone he met over here. His father had stressed that he'd do his best to fit in and carry his share of the load. Truth was, he had just gotten off the troop ship a week past and had not quite got the hang of understanding when British people were pulling his leg or being serious. To his mind, 
They did not really change their manner either way, so he had decided to assume that everyone was being earnest with him until proven otherwise. Less likelihood of misunderstandings that way than the other. I'm not late. I got here as fast as I could right after I got the papers, James said. Harry laughed in his face. You're more than a bit thick, aren't you, mate? You and your pals are years late for this show. James felt the sting of Harry's bitterness, but did not understand the effrontery. He and his fellow Americans had sure done their part, by gosh, sending bushels of guns and gas and high-explosive shells to these people, and this was the thanks he got. James swallowed his anger and gave Harry a shrug and a smile. Harry had been hoping for a fight, any excuse to knock the chip off this little shit's shoulder, but the American did not bite. Harry hawked out another gob of spit. Major's in Good Friday service. Should be out soon. James still was not quite sure why the sentry was upset with him, but he nodded anyway. He looked across at the Venstein prisoners. James had seen the looks on their faces before, at livestock auctions, mostly in the faces of doomed cows. Are those Germans? The sentry rolled his eyes, muttering to himself, Fucking Americans. He opened his matchbox, lit a lucifer, and went back to the satisfaction of murdering lice, leaving James alone with his pretty motorcycle and his dry dispatches.